Hi everyone, welcome back to Tudor Talk Time. We're in a bit of a different location today, so just take the um, background noise as a bit of ambiance, I think. Yep, you are along for the ride with us on this one. I've got um, two eggs on toast on the way. <laughs> I'm going to be having a peppermint tea, so... It smells really good in there, anyway. Um, We're having a lovely time. <laughs> so, as we said last week, it's another Catherine this week. And we're going to be doing Catherine Willoughby. Catherine Willoughby. I'm also realising I really hope we don't get copyright striked for the music that we'll be continuously playing in the background. I mean, I've never heard this song, so I don't know who's... Oh my gosh, I love this song. Shall I kick us off? Yeah, go for it. So Catherine Willoughby was born on the 22nd of March, 1519. I think we should comment immediately on the fact we have an actual birthday for her. Yeah. Exciting. Accurate. Accuracy. <laughs> she was born to Lord Willoughby, who was a lord. Surprise, surprise. Maria de Salinas, who actually was a lady in waiting for Catherine of Aragon. She only came over with Catherine of Aragon, so not English born and bred. But uh, they married in 1516, and Henry VIII actually gifted them Grimsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire, which shows that they were in good favour. You know, he gave them a house, which is quite nice. Laura agrees that it's I quite agree. nice. It's really sweet. But when Catherine was seven, her father died, and she was his only surviving heir. There were no males, and so she inherits everything, which is which is pretty cool. Pretty cool, no? Very cool. As a woman. As a woman. As a female. Yes. But in March 1528, so when she's what, like 12? Mm-hmm. 12. Charles Brandon, from marriage to Mary Tudor fame, actually bought the wardship of Catherine from the king for about like over two grand, which is a big, a big deal. That's a lot Deep of money. Pockets. Deep pockets. Deep pockets Charlie. And he sort of does this with the intention of marrying Catherine to his, his own son, Henry, but regardless she comes to the Brandons to be raised which is quite a common thing like if you're going to marry someone normally you just go and live like if you're a child you go and live with them for a bit yeah yeah but in 1533 Mary Tudor younger sister of the queen I mean of Henry VIII sorry dies on the 25th of June to be specific which is really close to my birthday <laughs> anyway, Mary dies, so Charles Brandon is left without a wife. Now that's this is awful. If Lara stops speaking for long periods of time in this episode, please bear in mind she is eating a full meal. It's just an egg on toast times two. I was gonna go for the full English, and I thought, you know what? Let's let's be let's be courteous to the listeners. Yes, so she's just eating eggs on toast. Not a, not a full meal. But yeah, Catherine attended the funeral of Mary, and she's, you know, a high-profile death. And to add insult to injury, to death, you know, <laughs> the injury being death. Less than about three months later, Charles Brandon marries Catherine. So they are married. And remember, just to emphasise the age gap, he was considering marrying her to his son. That's crazy. She was his fourth wife. Yeah. She was 14 and he was 49. And the Brandons kind of increased in power at this point because in 1536 and 7 we have the Pilgrimage of Grace and Brandon. He did really well with that. He deterred those Catholics away. Um, and Catherine was also a Protestant. I don't know if I mentioned this. They're fighting off the Catholics and Brandon is actually given Tattershaw Castle uh, to give him more power but he doesn't live there he doesn't go there he still lives in Grimsthorpe because that's obviously Catherine's home so fair enough 
I would want to live in my childhood home if I could. So in in 1535, Catherine gives birth to her first son. It was a boy, and we know that this boy was called Henry because he was christened Henry. Um, <laughs> and also, that's like one of three names. Yeah, you either go Henry, Thomas, or William, or Charles. But we not often Charles. Yeah, he was a rogue one. Charles was a bit rogue, or Arthur was really rogue. Yeah, that was like a quirky name. That's like calling your child Summer. Summer. Yeah. But they undoubtedly spent a lot of time at court. And in 1537, we have the tragic death of Jane Seymour. Dun, dun, dun. Is that tragic, Clara? That's not an appropriate response, actually, to the death of Jane Seymour. She died in 1537, childbed fever, as you would know if you've listened to our episode on Jane Seymour. Really great episode from way back when. And Henry, this is like Henry's longest break between marriages, 1537 to 1540. Doesn't mean he wasn't mingling. So Henry was was still looking. Like Even though we like to say, oh, you know, he took such a long break between marriages after Jane Seymour, he really loved her. He was still thinking about it. And Catherine was married at this point, obviously, to Charles Brandon. But he had a real interest in her. Yeah, and also to note, whilst he was married to Catherine Parr, and he was thinking about Catherine Willoughby, they were really close friends as well. And it's all those connections between the people who are more slightly reformed in their religion. And so they all have this kind of ring, this circle. Catherine Parr and Catherine Willoughby, obviously both really reformist. And Catherine Parr and Henry's marriage was a little bit on the rocks at points because she was a bit too reformist for him. And also Charles Brandon died in 1545. So Catherine has loads amount, large amounts of land, large amounts of money. She buys the wardships over her son. So she's in a really good position. And Henry VIII is drawn to her, has been for years. And now she's a, a single lady. His marriage with Catherine Parr, not very happy. He wants to have her beheaded. So I reckon he was thinking about it. Yeah, seriously. She was actually back on her kind of reformed stance. She was quite widely credited with moving Charles Brandon to a more reformed ideology. She was very outspoken about supporting the English Reformation. Um, she fled to Wessel, Wiesel, and later the Grand Duchy of Lithuania during Mary's reign to avoid persecution because she would have been someone of interest. She was that reformed. Also, I just want to give context to that, that in 1551, not one, but both of her sons died of sweating sickness on the same day. What? Yeah. I know, on the same day. So she is obviously doesn't have anything to stay in England for. So in either 1552 or 53, she married Richard Bertie, which I think is a really lovely name, personally. It is. It's actually a really rogue name. It's Richard. Richard. How many Richards are we have? Also, Bertie is a last name. <laughs> yeah, Bertie's a last name. That feels very modern. However, she does, her and Bertie spend their time exiled under the reign of Mary, but when Mary thankfully dies, they come back and under Elizabeth, they return to their absolute grandeur that they were in before. They return in about 1559. Um, Catherine's lands were restored to her. Richard Bertie um, was appointed a member of parliament for Lincolnshire. Wow. He was upholding democracy. Slay. Brilliant guy. <laughs> Yeah, as we can see, she has this influence in the royal circles. And if we go back to 1546, just briefly, um, we can see 
actually, she was really a person of interest in the whole Anne Askew case, which you might know about if you did A-level history. Listen to our episode on Anne Oh, or listen to our episode, which apparently exists on Anne Askew. <laughs> Anne Askew was this woman who was suspected of being very reformed, and then these two men, Richard Rich and Thomas Rithsley, I know I didn't say that right, but anyway, um, they start interrogating her, getting her to name people who are of interest, who are also of the reformed kind of belief. And these are all people in Catherine Parr's court. And so they were really trying to get her to name Catherine Willoughby, but obviously stuck to her guns and didn't. She was also under Edward's reign. She was very closely associated with the Duke of Somerset and also to William Cecil. There are over 20 surviving letters between her and Cecil just between 1549 and 1552 and it shows that actually they had a very intimate personal and political friendship she was very as we said she does have a very political role she has like a for a woman a lot of influence so she wrote to william cecil saying that she wanted to receive contribution from the crown for the cost of having to care for the orphan daughter of catherine parr and thomas lord sudley she also um wanted she wrote to him asking to purchase a dissolved chantry which was founded by her family and most kind of persistently, she was really fighting for William Norton, who was one of her distant relatives, and he was involved in some sort of dispute about profit of an office he held. But basically, because of all her lobbying, the matter was settled in her favour, and she then wrote very gratefully to Cecil, thanking him. She also often sent petitions to Anne, the Duchess of Somerset. This is again under um, Edward VI reign. She was wife of the Lord Protector, and these were kind of things trying to move to, again, a more reformed stance. Catherine, she was a woman of the town. She held banquets to, again, enforce that reformed agenda. In one specific banquet, during a party game, she named Bishop Gardner as the man she loved the least. She had actually named her pet Spaniel Gardner, which everyone found very funny because it meant she could call her dog to heel and go like, oh, Gardner, heel. It was like a demeaning thing to him. Which is so funny. So funny. Actually hilarious. We're cracking up her. She was also a patron of many Protestant writers, Catherine Willoughby, or Brandon. And this was basically a book, it was part of an effort from many of the people who had gone into exile during Mary's reign, who wanted to persuade Elizabeth to have a more reformed agenda. And the fact that it was dedicated to Catherine Willoughby was meant to have been a way to reach court more indirectly because of Catherine Willoughby's influence in the reformed sphere and the fact that she had authority in that and people respected her opinion in that. I think Catherine Willoughby's really interesting because... Imagine if it was the seven wives of Henry VIII. Does it have the same ring? No, it doesn't. Because imagine... Yeah, point of view, she's a nightmare. Yeah, because imagine it was divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, beheaded, survived. Oh, not fun. Not fun. Bit wordy. But she she lived to a decent age. She died in 1580 uh, and was buried in the Willoughby family chapel in the church of St. James Spilsby. Catherine Willoughby is a great example of a politically active woman in the early Tudor period. And importantly, because she is an heiress and a widow, which meant that actually she was one of she was a woman in quite a good position because she had her own property. She wasn't sharing it with a man. She wasn't waiting to pass it on to someone. It was her own, and she could control it, and that meant she could be politically active. One paper I read, which I thought was very interesting, was saying that you can compare the political goals and behaviour of early Tudor upper-class women 
to those of noblemen if they have control over their own property. They likely just pushed their agenda um, in, in, their, in their spheres, but it said that class was more important than gender in shaping activity and values, which I think is a controversial take, but it's an interesting one. And I, you know, you can kind of see it. If you are a woman who is in court, you have a, a lot of influence, the same way a man would almost. No, definitely. I agree with that because I think if, because for example, so few women could read and write, about 10% of the population anyway could read and write, and a much smaller percentage of women, but of the women that could read and write, they were exclusively upper class noble women that would have education. Because if you were a poor man and you had like a poor, just like a poor family, a peasant family, you are going to prioritise educating your sons over your daughters in no doubt. So I think that your worth as a noblewoman is much more elevated than that as a peasant because at least you hold power. Yeah. And we can see upper class men did allow these women to interact in politics but I do think it is still a step down yeah. because men would say like, Men would praise a woman who acted like a man, and so it's never like the woman is being political in yeah. a way. It's like, I don't know, They're it's being just. A manly woman. It's never going to threaten the men in the political yeah. field because you have to be a man to be that in a way. But yeah, I think that's all we have today for Catherine Willoughby. Um, a little bit of a snapshot on her life, but we hope you've enjoyed and we hope it isn't too disruptive. I'm thinking we're like those YouTube accounts that do like cafe background noise. That's no, like we're us. thinking we're like um, Chicken Shop Date. Yeah, we're gonna do a new series, <laughs> Tudor Shop Date. Tudor Eggs and Breakfast. Yes. But Tudor Tea Time. Tudor Tea Time. That's quite good. That should have been our name. Copyright that. Copy. Watch out. Lara's gonna buy the the name for one p again. I've <laughs> <laughs> got the domain now, guys. Watch out. Um, But thank you so much for listening, and we have a really exciting episode coming next week, so stay tuned. Stay. Stay. (laughs) Um, Thanks, and see you next week on Tudor Talk Time.